It's a privilege to be with you and to continue what Rob has done so far in the Rhythm of God series. As you know, if you've been here, uh, Rob's been preaching through the book of Genesis and specifically with this idea of the rhythm of God. And what that's meant, if you've been here, is we begin to see that in a book like Genesis, which opens the scripture, starts things off, there are certain rhythms and patterns established that have bearing on our life, even uh, here and now in 2016. And so we learn things about God himself that still hold bearing today. And we learn things about ourselves, about mankind, that still influence the way we think, the way we live. Uh, and God is operating in and through all of these details. So today, we will continue that series by looking at Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, a, uh, a passage we're all familiar with most likely, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language. They may not understand each other's speech. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are the God who has spoken. Father, we are grateful that you have not left us alone in our sin. You have not left us alone uh, to wander. But Father, you have pursued us. You have been the God who has always been communicating with his people. And so Father, we're grateful that you have spoken to us in your word, the scripture, that we can read of who you are and, and what you have in store for us. And Father, we're grateful that you have spoken that full and that final word in the person of Christ Jesus, the word who became flesh. And so God, we ask now that you as the Father would send your spirit to be here, to be our teacher. And that ultimately, through this past, through the written word, we might see Jesus. We might see him high and lifted up. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, I'll no longer be a Capulet. Tis but thy name that is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What's Montague? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. 
You might know those lines from the famous uh, Shakespearean play Romeo and Juliet. And it's the line that Juliet utters, one of the lines she utters as she's conflicted with her love for Romeo because Juliet is a Capulet. And we know Romeo is a Montague. And so they are members of rival families and their love is forbidden because their destiny and their identity is wrapped up with their name. Uh, Their name is everything. Their very name is at stake. We fast forward to where we are in 2016 and things are a little bit different, obviously different context. And yet names, in a sense, are no less important. In fact, we know there's been quite a cottage industry that's even developed around names. Uh, My wife and I have two kids, and when we were first having both of them, uh, we're pouring hours over these books, right? Popular baby names, websites. You want to pick a name that's, you know, popular enough, but not like overused. You're trying to find the right balance. Uh, It's a huge industry. Countless websites, countless books. Make sure you get that right and proper baby name. Well, I'm happy to inform you that the results are in from 2015, okay? And the top baby names of 2015, uh, boys, Noah, Liam, Mason, okay? Top three, Noah, Liam, Mason. Top girl baby names, 2015, Emma, Olivia, Ava, okay? So there you have it. Um, But huge, huge industry has developed around these things. Another kind of little tidbit, uh, research at the University of California, this is interesting, after analyzing a database containing millions and millions of death certificates, okay, found out an interesting little thing. Uh, If you're a male and your initials uh, are positive, like a positive acronym, so maybe PIE, P-I-E, JOY, J-O-Y, okay, if you have a positive Uh, acronym for your initials, you live on average four years longer, okay, than the average person. And on the other hand, if if your name spells out undesirable things like P-I-G, pig, okay, things like that, you live on average four years less, okay? So don't get nervous if you're, you know, wherever you are in that spectrum, but kind of interesting, all right? In Dale Carnegie's iconic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, written in, I think, in the 30s, says this, interesting quote, remember a person's name is to that person the sweetest, most important sound in any language. Juliet's question, what's in a name? Apparently a lot. Apparently a lot. And it's this very concept that Genesis 11 The Tower of Babel highlights for us this morning. You see, there's more to this story than just the construction of a tower, of an edifice. What's happening here is there is this very real attempt, this very real desire to construct a name for oneself, to construct an identity, to construct value and worth. And when we realize that, we realize that the, the, the times and the places might change, but the human heart, the human soul, the human condition remains the same, whether it's 
Genesis or 2016. So let's consider this text together uh, this morning for a moment. You might not realize, but in verses 1 through 9, Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, this passage has what scholars call a chiastic structure. Okay? Chiastic structure. What that means, basically, is that this is a very artfully, very intentionally crafted passage. And that's for a number of reasons. But basically what that means is that this passage, verses 1 through 9, the beginning of the story and the end of the story are, in a sense, these kind of like mirror images of each other. They're the inverse of each other. Okay? Let me show you. So verse 1, for instance, if, you have, if it's on the screen, I don't know if it's on the screen, if you have your Bible, verse 1, it said there was one language and the same words. Okay? Verse 1. Now go to the end of the story. Go to verse 9. It says there are many languages. So one language in the beginning, now there's many languages. Okay? Front of the story, back of the story. But go to verse 2. There's talk of gathering and settling. Then go to verse 8. Because 1 and 9 line up. Now 2 and 8 line up. Go to verse 8, and now they're dispersed. So gathering and settling, now they're dispersed. Okay, cast far and wide. Look at verse 3. They say, come let us make. Let us make bricks. Okay, so we can build. Then you go to verse 7. And what does God say? He says, come let us confuse. Okay, so there's this back and forth here in the chiastic structure of the passage. But you notice then that that puts verses 4, 5, and 6 in the middle. And that's the central idea of the text. The middle, the high point. The passage itself is almost like a tower. The high point, the middle, is the point. And what does the middle say? Well, if you notice in those verses, that's where the people themselves kind of uh, betray their, their intentions. They say, let's build a tower. Come, let us build a tower that we might make a name for ourselves. That we might make our name great. In other words, let's build something that bridges heaven and earth. That'll get God's attention. Let's build a bridge between heaven and earth and that'll certainly get his attention. The question for us then, then and now, is, well, why is this the posture of humanity? Why is this the natural default of humanity, even in the very beginning pages of Scripture, to build, to gather, to make names for ourselves? Why is that our natural default position? And we know the answer. We've been in now in this study for a few weeks. We've been looking at Genesis. This idea goes all the way back to the garden. In the garden of Eden, what happened? God and man had unbroken fellowship. Mankind had unmediated access to God. They could talk face to face. They could walk with him. It was perfection. It was harmonious. And yet, as we know, mankind never content was not content with that arrangement. They believed the lie of the serpent, and they now want themselves to be like God. They want to be his equal. And so they fall into sin, and that unmediated fellowship, that access to God, is forever broken. And mankind is expelled from the garden. But from that point on, then, what happens is humanity has this deep longing on the inside, this unfulfilled void 
on the inside. There's an ache in our souls. We know that there is something missing. And yet the problem, and Scripture shows us this, but our own lives indicate this as well. The problem, though, is that into that void and into that, that, that emptiness, we believed the lie that sin told us. And we began to convince ourselves that the remedy for this void, the solution to this emptiness within, is not submission back to God in repentance and humility, but rather, what is it? Self-sufficiency. Into this void of my life, God can't be the answer. I will not submit myself to his plan or his will. Who is God? Instead, what will I do? I will show myself to be self-sufficient. We've told ourselves that the the answer to our, our dilemma is not worship, but work. The work of our own hands. In other words, if separation from God is what created the longing within... The logical conclusion then is that only his presence can fill it. And in that regard, the people in Babel were not wrong. They were actually correct. They were trying to get back to God. Have you noticed that? The tower, whether you realize it or not, the tower of Babel is an attempt to get back to Eden, to get back to the garden, to get back to God's presence. The problem is how they go about doing it. It's this manufactured, self-righteous attempt. They want to get back to God. They want to do it in a way where they're going to build a tower so high, it's going to invade his very space. And if it invades his very space, then he has to recognize who we are. He has to acknowledge that we got there by our own striving, by our own working, by our own righteousness. So you begin to see the connection here. That the lie that Adam and Eve believed, the same lie now the citizens of Babel believe, which is what? We don't need God. Let's fire God and put ourselves in his place. But again, that's our posture as well. Whether we realize it or not, that's the same posture of humanity today. 2016. And we see it, of course, writ large on the global scale. We see nations at war with each other. We see people groups at war with each other trying to, to dominate, to, to get to a, a position of power, to try to become a superpower, whatever it might be. But we also see it on a very personal level as well. This is the truth of our own lives. We want that career that will finally validate our existence. We want that career that will finally give us the name that we are so desperately longing for. We want that relationship that will finally validate our existence, that will finally give us the name, maybe literally, that we have been longing for. We get upset when people don't recognize how great we are, our true value. We feel underappreciated. We can't be happy for people who climb whatever ladder we perceive exists ahead of us. And on and on it goes. We'll try to make a name for ourselves or we'll die trying. And we'll sacrifice health and family and our ethics and all sorts of things in order to get where we think we need to go be validated. 
to have worth, to have meaning. And so if this is our posture, how does God respond? Because you see, we're so busy building these stairways to heaven, to use a good Led Zeppelin phrase. Um, But you see, the approval of our neighbor, the approval of our coworker, the approval of our peer, or better a better way to say it is, any achievement that we try to get beyond our neighbor, all those things would pale in comparison if we could just be assured that we had God's approval. In fact, if we, if we knew for certain that we had God's approval, we wouldn't work to make a name for ourselves with such reckless abandon. And so into that realization of our own lives and into that realization here in Genesis, how does God respond? What is God's response to that? And if you noticed, if you went back to verse 5, it says, the Lord came down to see the city and tower which the children had built. You see, there's a touch of irony in that verse, isn't there? The Lord, it's almost like they're patting us on the head, you know? The Lord came down to see the children. Even that phrase has a little bit of irony to it. You see, for all their efforts to build this cosmic tower to the sky, well, to the God of the universe, who literally holds galaxies in his hands, this little tower in Mesopotamia was like an anthill, okay? And God had to come down just to see it. It reminds me of when my own kids, they're in the living room, they build blocks, you know, things like that. We have those big, like, styrofoam uh, blocks, and they'll build a castle that's literally as high as themselves. You know, they're five and three, so the castle will be, like, eye level. But from my vantage point, like in the kitchen, let's say, I can't see beyond the couch, you know? So I have to come around, come down, and see what they've built, and then give them, you know, approval for doing it. Uh, well, it's the same thing here with God. He has to come down and see what's happened. And we know the story. In coming down, God kind of invalidates their project, and he sends them to the four winds of the earth. But have you ever considered for a moment, have you considered that when God does that, when God comes down, and when God scatters, it's not just a punitive measure. He's not just scolding them, if you will. There's grace at work here. It's actually the grace of God that does this. Consider for a second the skill they are using to build the tower. Well, it's a skill that he's given them. He's designed them in his image. Their ability to build, design, work is a gift that he's given to them. He's wired them that way. The same thing is true for you this morning. Your disposition, your personality, your skill set, your resources, your assets, your vocation, whatever it is, God's given you those abilities. God's gifted you a certain way. And the things that you possess in your lives, the skills you possess in your lives, are ultimately gifts from him. 
But what he wants them to see in Babel, and what's, what he wants us to see this morning, is that when those gifts and talents and skills are used in service to our own names and not towards his name, that we're actually shortchanging ourselves. We're actually shrinking the horizons of our lives and living very self-focused, huddled lives like they were in Babel. And so you begin to see that when he does this, he, it's, as to, it's, as, it's as if to show them that their desires and goals aren't too lofty, they're actually too small. He has much, much bigger and grander plans for them. And it's the same thing in our lives as well. I've shared this story before, especially if you go to our Wednesday night service, uh, which has broken for the holiday, but I shared this story before. My son, Wyatt, he's, uh, he's five, and we took him to the circus a couple years ago. Barnum & Bailey's Circus, American Airlines Arena, down in Miami. It's this unbelievable spectacle, you know, greatest show on earth. And we're sitting there, and we wanted to save a few bucks, so we packed a lunch for Wyatt, so we didn't have to buy concessions, you know. And we packed him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And one of my favorite memories is that we're sitting here in the circus, and there's this one moment where a man is riding a motorcycle that's been lit on fire on a tightrope in the sky, okay? Just picture that for a second. A man riding a motorcycle, I would never get on a motorcycle even on federal, okay? He's riding a motorcycle, lit on fire, on a tightrope in the sky, okay? Hundreds of feet above us. It's unbelievable, all right? And Wyatt, though, is eating a peanut butter jelly sandwich and in his mind, that's the greatest show on earth, okay? Not the circus, but the sandwich. He is just fixated as a three-year-old or whatever he was at that point on this sandwich, and he won't even look up and see the man on fire, on a motorcycle, on a tightrope, in the sky, okay? He doesn't even care, okay? His world is here. His world is in the sandwich, all right? But the same thing's true for us. And this is the point, the Tower of Babel, is that we're self-focused, we're turned inwardly, we're huddled, we're using our gifts and our resources and our talents for the sake of our own name when God has so much more in store for us, so much more that he wants for us, and so much more that he wants to do in the world It's as if God is coming down and pleading with them, don't make a name for yourself. Don't you see I've made you in my image? Don't go out and build your own portfolio. That's dust in the wind. Don't go out and build an anthill of a tower in Mesopotamia. Come and build my worldwide kingdom that will never end. That will never spoil or perish or fade. You see, when God came down to see the tower and dispersed them, it was actually an act of grace. It was actually an act of compassion because he wanted them to see there's no need to build a tower. He was already building for them, for you, this worldwide edifice called his church, a kingdom that would span every corner of the globe, a kingdom that would include every tongue tribe, and nation. The book of Hebrews later will say that we've inherited a kingdom that is unshakable. 
You see, God was at work building this edifice, building this empire in, in, the, in the right sense of the word. And he says, don't waste your time with these empires of dirt. Don't waste your time with these towers built upon your own name. And the reason we know this is because if you go just one chapter later, one chapter later in Genesis 12, it's interesting who we meet. We meet a character named Abram. And Rob will talk about him next week. But we meet Abram. You'll notice here that, see, the people who are building the Tower of Babel, the builders of the tower, are descendants of Shem, it says. Shem was one of Noah's sons, and this is after the flood. And it's these descendants of Shem who are building the tower. And they want to make a name for themselves. They want to unite all the nations. They want to bridge heaven and earth. But they're looking to their own production and not to God's promise. Because in Genesis 12, we're introduced to Abram. And Abram, if you notice, is also descendant of Shem. And God promises him that he will be given what? A great name. He doesn't have to go build it. God will give it to him. He will inherit a great name. And God promises that he will one day have a descendant, Jesus, the Christ. And it's Jesus who will unite all the nations. In fact, we see that in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, we have the, the story of Pentecost. We don't have time to go into it, but, but what happens there is that it's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. At Babel, the languages are confused and they're scattered. Well, in Acts 2, with the coming of Christ, what happens? The Spirit comes upon the people, and the apostles can speak in multiple languages. And now all the peoples of the earth hear the gospel in their own tongue. And they come to Jerusalem to learn and to worship. You see, it's the reversal of the Tower of Babel. For Jesus, and Jesus only, is the one who will unite the nations. And it's he and he alone who will bridge heaven and earth. Not in a tower, but in his body. And it's Jesus alone who will truly bring us back to Eden, bring us back to paradise, bring us back into fellowship with God, bring us to the very throne room of heaven, not based on our own righteousness, not based on the own working of our hands, but based on his righteousness, 